Tonight on this recorded edition of Extension 720, we visit with two men who've done a very interesting book following upon another very interesting book. They are Robert Putnam, author of Bowling Alone, and Louis Feldstein, uh, who is his colleague in certain undertakings at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. And the new book is titled Better Together, Restoring the American Community. The basic point, Robert Putnam, of uh, the last book, Bowling Alone, was that we bowl alone rather than in teams, that American community is dissolving, is getting disordered, disintegrating, and we become are becoming ever more isolated, alienated, anomic, whatever one of those fancy words one wants to use as borrowed from the accents of American sociology. Right. Uh, are you suggesting, well, first of all, how did that begin to happen? Why did it happen? And are you, in fact, suggesting that the, the whole thing is now reversing? Um, bowling alone took a look at trends in social connection, civic engagement, over the course of the 20th century. And for most of the 20th century, Americans were becoming more and more involved in community life. Americans joined more and voted more and trusted more. And, and yeah. way back in the 1830s or 40s, Tocqueville said that that was distinctive about it. Absolutely right. We're all involved right. in informal associations. And, and, for, and throughout most of the 20th century, that was becoming more and more true of us. And then yeah. suddenly, silently, mysteriously, sometime in, in the middle 60s, late 60s, early 70s, we began to do all those things less. We began to vote less. We began to go to church less. We 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 stopped uh, spending so much time with our family and friends, and and we dropped out of clubs. And PTA membership plummeted, and Rotary Club membership went down, and Scouts went down, and so on. And and the story of bowling alone basically mm -hmm. is that over the last third of the 20th century, Americans became more and more disconnected and more and more isolated. Well, before we go on to what's happening lately, the immediate and necessary question, of course, is what went wrong? Yeah. Why did we become so unfriendly? It, it, it really, what it amounts to is that there are a variety of, a variety of social and economic uh, changes that rendered obsolete one set of ways of connecting. Uh, two career families, television, especially commercial entertainment television, urban sprawl, a variety of other changes meant that the ways that our parents had connected with their communities and with their friends and neighbors didn't fit the way we'd come to live. Now, as I said at the end of Bowling Alone, if you go back a hundred years to the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, the same thing had happened then, at the, at the, in that period, because of industrialization and immigration and urbanization. Um, when people left the village, in whether the village was in Iowa or in, in uh, you know, the shtetl or, or in Italy, and moved to the city in America, they left behind their community institutions and their family and friends. And America, at the turn of the 19th to 20th centuries, just like our own time, suffered from a crisis of social connection, a, a, a deficit of what I call social capital. And then, in a very short period of time, between about 1890 and 1910, they fixed the problem. Most of the major civic institutions in American communities today were invented between about 1890 and 1910. The, Red the, the Boy Scouts and the Red Cross and the League of Women Voters and the NAACP and the Urban League and the Knights of Columbus and Adassa and Rotary and Kiwanis and the Lions Club and, and, and. It's hard to name a major civic institution in American communities today that was not invented in a very short period of time. If you'd been around then, 
it would have been tempting to say, oh, life was much nicer back on the farm. Everybody back to the farm, please. But that's not what they did. What they did instead was to invent new ways of connecting that fit the way they've come. As we urbanized, we regrouped. As we were. did, exactly. And, we, yeah. and, we, and uh, the, the book Bowling Alone said, that's our challenge. The challenge the, it concluded by saying, the end of the book Bowling Alone <laughs> said, our challenge now is to see not to bemoan the absent, the, you know, the, the passing of the 50s, but rather to think if we to, to work creatively with other people in our communities to create new forms of social connectivity. And that sets the stage for this new book, which basically involves looking at a whole lot of cases that Lou and I both investigated of, of new forms of connection. Not to say that the trends aren't down, but these stories are stories of people who've successfully turned the tide and in their own little ways are building new forms of connection. But have the trends been down everywhere? One remembers, I remember, uh, the great gambit uh, provided by Stephen Potter, either in his book Gamesmanship or else his later book One-Upsmanship, you know, how to get away with it without being an absolute plunk, <laughs> in which he says whenever an expert talks about something, you could always, uh, you can always uh, discombobulate him by looking pensive and then saying, yes, but surely not in the South. <laughs> and I would say, yes, but surely not in New Hampshire. I lived in New Hampshire for a few years. And uh, Louis Feldstein runs the New Hampshire Charitable Foundation. Uh, in the sort of village life that you have in New Hampshire, Manchester for the moment put aside, uh, there are solidary organizations or communities or face-to-face -face groupings inevitably forced upon you by more or less village life. You sound like you could be the New Hampshire Chamber of Commerce. Am I? But uh, am well, I exaggerating? Minus the accent. Yeah, <laughs> they can't do that here. Uh, it looks attractive from a distance, and New Hampshire is surely better off than Los Angeles, and surely better off than parts of the Deep South. But just as surely, New Hampshire's social capital is declining too. So we can take scant solace, perhaps, in saying we're still better than Chicago, maybe, or maybe Los Angeles, or a big city, because it's much easier in small towns. But it's only scant solace because ours is declining just as much as theirs is. Well, I can do the accent. Uh, I'm drawing upon my memories uh, from life in Hanover, New Hampshire. Uh, <laughs> Hanover is not part of New Hampshire. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is the, the seat of Dartmouth College where I taught for a few years. But uh, to be sure, the college itself then provides a solidarity community. It was then a smaller college than it is now. It, it, it is tempting to look at, at, at the areas like New Hampshire that are more homogeneous racially, yeah. that haven't gone through the changes of other parts of the country, and say it's not declining there. And where and most I'm of the people to in town know, and where most of the people in town know who you are. Uh, but this is like Mr. Plunkett. You've got to acknowledge that even there, it may be declining too, happening yeah. slowly, imperceptibly, but the same decline in voting. The sa when I stand at meetings in New Hampshire, all over the state, or in Maine, or in Vermont, and I say to people, and I p report to them that less people are turning out to vote, that the same people are serving as officers of clubs, that less people are willing to serve otherwise, they nod their head knowingly and say, yes, it's right. It yeah. is happening there too, just not as fast as elsewhere. I want to put an hypothesis to both of you. Is it possible that that withdrawal from solidarity connections and relationships, clubs, associations, and so on, is due not only to the malign influence of the electronic screen, both the television screen and the computer screen, and uh, suburbanization and all of those other trends that uh, you already have mentioned, is it possible also that it's due to a growing sense for average Americans that we really are not empowered? that the really important decisions are made elsewhere, and we are barely aware of who holds the power and how they manipulate us, but they do. 
And uh, despite the trappings of democracy and despite all of the uh, paraphernalia of uh, civic um, virtue that is tr uh, to which we are encouraged to aspire, in truth, we uh, are as on a darkling plane where not ignorant but powerful armies, corporate, clash by night. Well, I th the par in part, I agree with that, actually. I agree that there... Well, that makes you feel trivial. Yeah, but, uh, but, but only in part. Look, I, I can believe that people have stopped voting because they feel powerless. I can even believe they've stopped going to town meetings in New Hampshire because they feel that all the real decisions are being made elsewhere. Um, I can believe, in other words, that powerlessness has, has, a, has an effect here. But picnics are down by 60% in America. Uh, spending time with your, having dinner with your own family is off by about 40% in America. Uh, knowing your neighbors is off in big time. And well, those are not factors that are driven by, you know, a sense of, of grand powers in the country that are, I, I can get to, I can go If to you don't go to picnics and you don't go to church and you don't spend time with your family, what do you do when you're not working? Well, first of all, um, some of us are actually working a lot more. Not not guys, but women are on, yeah. on average working a lot more than they True. did uh, some time ago. And and secondly, we're spending the average American spends four hours a day sitting in front of the tube. That damn screen. Um, and if you're not watching your four hours a day, somebody else out there is having to pick up your part, your share of the four hours. What I mean by that is it's a it's a big chunk of of um, yeah. of time. We're, we're also driving more. We're spending more time in the car driving. And we know that for every additional 10 minutes you spend driving, it reduces by 10% the likelihood that you'll eat with your family, that you'll vote, that you every single sign of civic life. But we're not, drive we're not driving to club meetings. Where are we driving? <laughs> we oh, you know where we're driving. We're now driving because we shop in one town and our kids uh -huh. go to school in another and we work in a third town and we recreate in a fourth town and we go to church in a fifth town and our friends live in a sixth town. The That's point Nice move. The, the point, That's true in New Hampshire, too. Yes. And the point is not to try. We can't reverse these things, not all of them. So the issue for us is, given these conditions, we can't make America go back to the 1950s. So then the issue is, given this, what kinds of forms of social capital can we build? How can we connect people that's not like the 1910 or 20s? What's the way to do it now? Okay, that's the problem, and that's what is addressed in your new book, Better Together, Restoring the American Community, which is just published by Simon and Schuster. Uh, I'll bite. How, do, <laughs> how then do we do it? Or rather, what are they doing to restore community? Well, we should we should talk about some of these uh, cases. Uh, You've done stories. This book is full of case studies. It fact. is. It's uh, we we began by looking at hundreds of cases of um, of the stories around the country of people trying to build community mm -hmm. in, in one niche or another. And we sorted through those those hundreds of cases and and came up with a, a dozen cases that that met two criteria really. One is they were looked like serious successes. Uh, they 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 had some endurance. They had had some real accomplishments. The people involved in them had some real accomplishments. They looked like they might have portable lessons. That is, you could read. It, not, it wasn't unique to this particular setting. So first, the first criteria was: is there a real story here worth telling? And the second was: given that. We wanted to pick examples of the most diverse sort because we wanted to illustrate and learn from the immense range of ecologies within which people are inventing new forms of community. So one of our stories is a is a story of an internet group in uh, in San Francisco called Craigslist, which is a very interesting example of using internet internet technology uh, to 
help build real face-to-face ties, not not some virtual community out there in the ether, but uh, but using this this kind of listserv and this this bulletin board at at at, uh, at the website Craigslist as a way of finding real friends mm-hmm. in real places in San Francisco or New York or in Chicago. At the other extreme, another but is this just a place where people gab on the screen? No. Th- or do they have some shared purpose? Well. The the core business idea here is that it's a it, if you went to the site if you go to the site Craigslist yeah. it looks like a, a list of one ads job place job ads and ads about you know people who want to share apartments and so on and that's the first per- reason people go there, but they go the, having gone there to look for a job or to look for an apartment partner or whatever they also discover lots of other groups. Uh, people who say, you know, we're going on a bu- on a bicycle trip uh, this weekend up Mount Tamalpais. Anybody want to join us? Or my favorite example is a guy. Uh, one of the web one of the postings that we quote in the uh, in that chapter is a a fellow who says, um, I'm about to do my laundry and I I do my uh, clothes and I'm I'm um, I'm at 15th and Market. Is there anybody around here who would like to play peanut pinochle in the next hour? Well, an example of using internet technology to try to find a real face. He was not looking to play virtual pinochle. Mm-hmm. He wanted to. Real pinochle partner. Did he get one? <laughs> Don't know the answer. Let me give you a question. totally different example. Different setting entirely. Let's talk labor unions. At one point, over 32% of Americans who were non-farm laborers worked on la- were members of labor unions. That's dropped now to under 13%. Great source of social capital connected gone. But at Harvard, wonderful example, small group of women built a labor union there and successfully organized all the clerical and administrative and secretaries at Harvard. And they did it in a totally different way. No leafleting, no mass rallies, no attacking their employer, no attempt to try and picket, no haranguing people about the union. They did it quietly, one by one by one, building personal relationships. It took them 13 years. And despite huge opposition from Harvard, they successfully organized a union there. And that union has continued to grow. While the major unions have plummeted in America, this union has grown and organized how more than another system. How interesting places. and how curious. Another place where I taught uh, before I went to Dartmouth was Yale. I thought you were going to mention that. Yeah. And Yale at the moment, I think, is still tied up in a terrible strike yes. by uh, clerical or other employees, yes. non-academic yes. employees, yes. Yes. Uh, who are hardly doing it in a quiet, peaceful way. No. They've stopped the university in its tracks. Right. And this What's particularly attractive about this one, which we saw again and again, is people building the social capital through these efforts have passed up the chance to vilify or demonize Mm -hmm. their employer or the enemy. So at Harvard, for example, unlike Yale, the Harvard slogan of the union for all these years has been, it's not anti-Harvard to be pro-union. That's a real change. You've had long contacts uh, with union life, uh, Louis Feldstein. Are you thereby suge- are you hereby suggesting that really the best way to handle labor capital struggle is for labor to be sort of benignly uh, combative? Ah, first of all, don't mistake this for some plea that social capital is somehow kumbaya, pleasant, gentle. Uh-huh. It doesn't make conflict go away. Conflict is still there. What social capital can do is convert that conflict sometimes to progress. Well, fact, you guys both have an association with Harvard. At Harvard, there are some people, you know them, I forget their names, though I've talked to them, who uh, are very, who study negotiation and who argue there's, th- there's a win-win style of negotiation. Well, sometimes there is, but sometimes there isn't. And um, I think I very much want to underline what Lou was saying. Um, our claim in looking at all these cases is not that 
that building community is a is a warm, cuddly, uh, as Lou said, kumbaya kind of uh, 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 process. Let's take another one of the cases in our book, the case of Valley Interfaith, which is a organization among Mexican American farm uh, migrant farm laborers in uh, in the Rio Grande Valley. Uh, these folks. 10, 15 years ago, lived in really horrible conditions. They lived in what were called colonias, which were sort of rural townships without running water, without sewers, without paved roads. Um, and uh, and they were, frankly, disempowered. Um, they, however, working on a foundation of connections in Catholic parishes, built a such a powerful community organization it's probably the most powerful community organization in america now actually that in the last election last state election in in texas they were able to demand that all of the gubernatorial candidates in texas come down to them and meet with them a thousand of them and face questioning would you mr candidate would you or would you not support and then they would list their particular demands a, a really interesting question is how come this very backward part of the people in this very backward part of the of the country who don't have you know fancy college degrees and who who weren't actually uh, you know uh, joiners and 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 uh, and League of Women Voters types nevertheless were able to put together an organization a community organization that had that kind of power and they, they got had, gubernatorial candidates to come did they achieve anything else. Yeah, sure. They've got they've got paved roads and they've got uh, uh, running water and they've mm. got uh, new better taxes, schools better and, schools, better health. Absolutely. Yeah, and and they did it in part using actually some lessons that are that are that are drawn from the Saul Alinsky generation here yeah, in Chicago. Exactly. I was thinking of Alinsky, uh, and Alinsky, of course, was the great uh, uh, proponent of confrontational uh, dynamics when yeah. it comes to seeking the uh, to achieve the purposes of your usually deprived. Or isolated community. Yeah, that's that's true, and I was using that example to illustrate that social capital is not always just about uh, you know warm cuddly feelings. On the other hand, there is a connection between the the style of work that's done by this Huck to the Union at Harvard and the mm -hmm. style of work that's done by the Valley Interfaith, because what's at bottom, what has made that both those cases work is lots of one-on-one -on -one connections between. Uh, you know, uh, secretaries and clerical workers at Harvard, or among farm workers in the Rio Grande Valley, in which they do one-on-ones. That is, one neighbor sitting down talking with another neighbor, or house parties in which small groups of of neighbors get together, and they ask one another, "What's <coughs> what? How do? You, what are you? What's bothering you? And 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 what? Tell me about your story." That kind of storytelling and one-on-ones takes time. It took time at Harvard, it takes, took time in the Rio Grande Valley, but it builds a very powerful organization. Things run together and programs overlap. Only a few days ago, Bill Greider was here, and uh, we're talking about his new book, and of course, he argues from the left, and he's a, a man of considerable perspicacity and depth when it comes to looking at the real truth about the structure of the American economy, but basically what he wants is a return to the Yugoslavian model, so to speak. That is to say, worker ownership of corporations to be achieved somehow by buying those corporations out. Uh, and he doesn't quite 
fully clarify how that can be accomplished, except he says, go to the foundations, they'll lend you the money to buy the corporation. <laughs> and that's true in a few instances that he documents, but it's hardly, I think, a basic workable model for the reorganization of the American economy. But he does argue that in the doing of this sort of takeover, and he's got a few instances uh, uh, where supposedly it has been accomplished, this is wonderfully restorative for the mental health or the sense of vigor and meaning in life for the individuals who are, are involved in the operation. And you're talking about restoration of individual enthusiasm and optimism as well, aren't you? Right. And in fact, if you were to hear the leadership of the Harvard Union talk, they would talk about the empowerment and, as someone described it, a union for shy people, allowing shy people to mm -hmm. feel a sense of growth and power. But you know, don't stay with just with, with Hug to Union. Let's go to a totally different setting. Let's look at UPS. We are going to do that right after we first listen to some um, entrepreneurial modules which are waiting, and then we return to our conversation with Robert Putnam and Louis Feldstein, the co-authors of the new book, Better Together, Restoring the American Community, published by Simon & Schuster. And we return to conversation with the authors of the new book, Better Together, Restoring the American Community. Robert D. Putnam, who is professor of government at Harvard University, former director there of the Kennedy School of Government, and Louis Feldstein, who is one of the leading organizers in the country, is indeed uh, the uh, president or the director of, what's the name of your organization in New Hampshire? New Hampshire Charitable Foundation. And you're much engaged in civic operations of a somewhat confrontational sort. When you're a Democrat in New Hampshire, that's the way it feels. That's the way it feels. But you were saying just before we stopped for those commercials that we ought to look at UPS. All right, I'll look at UPS. They Good. they pick up our stuff and they sometimes deliver things to me. But are they a community? No, they're an occupational community. Uh -huh. And the reason I mention that is to, is to illustrate, as Bob pointed out before, the range and diversity of settings in which social capital can be effective and can be built and we can learn from it. If we don't look at the work site, we don't address the workplace, we can't solve the social capital problem. That's an important and important place, just as the churches, as the unions are, the community is. Look at the work site. We picked mm -hmm. UPS purposely rather than looking at uh, a sort of a boutique -y kind of company like Ben and Jerry's or Stonyfield Yogurt or Patagonia. We picked them because they're big, they're mainline, 370,000 employees, global industry, highly competitive. And yet, in this huge company, great great focus on conversation, on direct person-to-person, -person, on building social capital. The founder of UPS, Jim Casey, designed the company from the start to build social capital. Now, he didn't use the term. He didn't know the term. But he knew that to make a profit, he had to build trust, reciprocity among his workers. It occurs to me that some lexicography is required. Uh, I'm not sure that I know the meaning of the term. Good. What do we mean by social capital? Here's the man. Well, uh, we all know what physical capital is. It's a tool, like mm -hmm. a screwdriver or a pen is a little bit of physical capital. And human capital, economists have taught us to use to refer to training and education. Either a physical tool or training and education can make us more productive. Social capital says yes, and there are features of our communities that are like that. If you have the good fortune to work in an organization or to live in a community where people are connected productively with one another, you can get more done than otherwise you could. And the, the core idea of social capital is that social networks have value. We talk about networking as a career strategy because it's useful for finding jobs to have, have good social networks, but there are 
very powerful effects of social networks and of civic engagement on community life. For example, uh, the best predictor of a low crime rate in a neighborhood is how many neighbors know one another's first name. That connect those connections in the community have the effect of deterring crime. Or as Jane Jacobs told us years ago, how many um, ladies sit uh, at their windows looking out on the street? Yep. It's and keeping kids in line. Yep. And, and which they she, don't do anymore. She was of one course. of the people, the first people to use the term social capital, actually, yeah. to refer exactly to this this phenomenon. It's also true that schools work better, much better in communities where people are, where parents and community members are engaged in the schools. There are even very powerful physical health effects of social connection. Lots of really good studies that show mm. that the more connected you are, the longer you'll live. Your chances of dying over the next 12 months are cut in half by joining one group cut in three quarters by joining two groups. Even a bowling team, if you could find one. <laughs> That's right. So social capital, the term social capital, simply is a handy term for referring to the fact that there it's not just warm, cuddly feelings we're talking about here. Yeah. There are measurable consequences for the health of our communities, for the crime rates, for the economic activity rates, for the, for the way the schools work, and for our own physical uh, and psychological well-being from being connected. So all of these cases we're talking about are cases in which people are setting out to do one thing, but there that is, Jim Casey was not just trying to build a community, he was trying to make a profit. But he discovered that the way to make a profit more, more efficiently, more effectively, was to worry about social connections, worry about social capital. So how does social capital work in UPS, and is it different from, say, Federal Express? Don't know enough about Federal Express, but let me describe a couple of examples of how it works at UPS. Yeah. At UPS, all across the country, every morning at every hub and every center, the drivers meet together face-to-face -to -face for what they call pre-work communications meetings, where they talk before they hit the road. Every day at UPS, all across the country, at lunchtime, drivers come together, park their trucks together at a park or at a parking lot or at a diner, and there they talk and they schmooze, but they're also shifting loads back and forth. They're helping out somebody who's in trouble. They're helping a rookie figure out where the next address is. And UPS supervisors are expected not to be in their offices, but to be out moving around on the ground talking to people. At UPS, even at the level of top management, senior management, the 12 top managers, no secretaries, and between them, only four administrative assistants. When they want to talk to one another, no memos, no emails. They talk to one another. They don't file emails at UPS. They don't keep them. They discard them. They don't file paper memos. It disappears. As they said to us, this is not a memo kind of a company. The premium is on face-to-face -face communications. Huge amount of discretion and devolution of authority. If you're on the line in UPS and you're loading and loading a truck and you see someone else in trouble, you don't ask the supervisor. You switch jobs and you go over and help out there. What's the um, the wage, the earnings differential between those top 12 and the ordinary guy on the truck? That's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. It's substantial. I mean, we don't want to make this sound like this is a socialist uh, uh, firm that uh, that Bill Greider would love. It's a it's a capital, very large multinational corporation. Uh, our our point here is not that there are a whole lot of saints there. Our point rather is that the paying attention to social connectivity is an integral part of their uh, their their the way they're they're making a living and. I guess there's another lesson that I see in the in the UPS story, and it's oddly it's paralleled in the in the union story that we tell. Sometimes things look inefficient; they look redundant uh, from a very simplistic point of view, but are actually really important from a social capital point of view. For example, the union at Harvard also has this rule of no memos. 
Uh, and you ask, well, that's got to be inefficient, right? It would be easier for the union to get messages out to its to its uh, members by just pushing an email button and sending the the message around. But they have the view, which is a subtle one, but really in, very important, that if they don't use memos, that forces the union organizers and union activists and union members to go around and talk face to face with other with the with the other folks in the union, and that builds these very strong bonds of trust and reciprocity and solidarity that in the by now quote more efficient unquote ways of forming unions d don't exist that's why these this union is succeeding when lots of others aren't have you ever run into the thesis that what went wrong in the vietnam war on our side <coughs> was that we they put into operation a rotation system. A man did his time, and then he was rotated out and sent back home, but the unit stayed. <clears throat> Therefore, you did not develop mm -hmm. true solidary mm -hmm. connections between yeah. an infantry squad, within an infantry squad, within the company, and so on. Yeah. People didn't really know each other. And, and, in fact, that's right. I mean, I, you know, there are a lot of things that went wrong in Vietnam. I don't want to make it sound like this, yeah. is, this is the whole story, neither do you. But it is true that there's a lot of actually quite good evidence that the reason you throw yourself on a grenade is not because you believe in you know, the flag or because you, you want to overthrow Saddam. Just to protect or any, your buddies. Because yeah. you want to protect your buddies. And that's, in our language, that's social capital. <clears throat> Social sure. capital is a crucial element. It's why the Israeli army is so powerful, frankly, because it's got a lot of connections and trust and reciprocity among the soldiers. So in th that's in an extreme situation. You can see the value of, 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 of creating uh, what the military would call unit morale. Let me give a different example, though, if I can, because it's from a very different domain, uh, also a story in the book, and it's one that I think some, some, peop some readers will find really surprising. Um, one of the most interesting cases we, we studied is a, stu is a um, very large, enormously large, Southern Baptist Church in Orange County, California. Now, I've got to be clear here, uh, Southern Baptist theology is not my cup of tea, and I'm not at that part of the ideological or, or political or theological spectrum. But this... You believe that God does hear the prayers of the Jews? I because the found, one of the... <laughs> Bailey, what's his name, who for a while was the head of the Southern Baptist Church... Uh, is famous for the statement, God does not hear the prayers of Jews. Yeah, I would actually, in, I'd be a little surprised actually if, if uh, the, Rick Warren, who's the pastor of this yeah. uh, very large church in, in Orange County, would, would say that. Um, but I'm not, my point here is not about the theology. My of point course. is about the structure of this church. Rick Warren began with seven people in his living room 20 years ago. He now has a congregation. Every week, 15,000 people come to this church, and the total membership of the church is 30 or 40 thousand members. Um, and this in a period when overall nationwide membership church attendance is, is way down. This church combines th three things that are unexpected. First, um, a quite traditional, quite orthodox uh, conservative theology, uh, you know, a world created in seven days and all yeah. that. Two, extremely contemporary marketing techniques. They think very carefully about how to attract people uh, into the church, I don't mean in using some some you know mind washing techniques. I mean what would make you want to come and go to come to this place? And so they have a, for example, uh, uh, their their uh, services on Sunday morning are you know with pop music, rock music, and and they have a what they call Starbucks at at uh, Saddleback, which is a, a kind of an area there at the church where you can just sit and enjoy your coffee and listen to the listen to the service. So they use modern marketing techniques in service of a very traditional theology. But this is the, the third point is the part that's most interesting to us. They are building 
really powerful bonds of connection, genuine connection community in a setting, Orange County, that is really a desert as far as, as social connections are concerned. Orange County has high mobility, long commutes, everybody's just arrived there, they don't have friends, and what they find in Saddleback is a whole array hundreds, thousands of small groups inside the church, mountain biking groups and survivors of breast cancer and male partners of survivors of breast cancer and um, volleyball playing, people who want to combine volleyball and, and Bible reading. And in this setting of, of, of lots of small groups in which people can make connections with other real people, what they provided is genuine community. They've learned how to reconcile two things that are, this is an enduring tension we've discovered in building social capital. You want to be small because small is good for connections. It's easier to make connections in a small town or in a small class or in a small group. But with size, they want to save a lot of souls. And just as, you know, Casey wants to make a lot of profits and the folks in, in um, in uh, the Rio Grande Valley, want to want to pave a lot of roads. So you need size to get a make accomplishments. You need smallness to make to, to work on social capital, and this cellular structure, this federated structure mm. of lots of small groups within a single structure, uh, is a it's a terrifically productive way. I begin to get the sense that you really have developed a kind of a homeostatic model. That is, that uh, you believe the following, that. A fair amount of social engagement, connectedness between people uh, as they share common goals and purposes and get engaged either in leisure activities which they enjoy or in programmatic activities looking towards some kind of social alteration, that all of this is good for people and good for societies, but that certain things tend to pull people apart. They may just be trends of suburbanization. It may be that damn tube which preoccupies so many people and takes them away from human engagement, but that as you lose social engagement, you get to a certain point where the mechanism it, the disequilibrium becomes self-correcting. Inevitably, it stirs up once again the need for that kind of engagement and the reef and the, the formation of new kinds of of mini collectivities. That's right. I, that's exactly the, my account of the of the of the progressive era uh, mm -hmm. when we 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 lost one set of forms. Uh, uh, you know, barn raisings and quilting bees didn't cut it when you were in Chicago. You needed to have some new form of connection, yeah. and I think that's what we have the challenge we have to face now. But I'll. I'll modify it with, with the following difference between now and then. And they did it in the progressive era. They did it without national leadership. It happened from the bottom up mm -hmm. across this country. Now it's not enough to have it happen from the community ground up, from the ground up. We also need national leadership, and we're not getting that. Well, wait, I take 911. Why do we need, moment. why not just allow it to happen from the bottom up? Let the people do it. Because the country is organized differently now, and the role of the president and the role of the national leadership makes a huge difference in our ability to, to what we do locally to see some larger connection to it. People don't see that larger connection, and they need the role of the national leader to help exemplify, articulate, call upon them to show these actions. Let me, the let me, president let me. is a much bigger force in our lives now than he ever was before. And do you see that coming from, say, the current president? No. And the current don't. administration? No, we don't. I don't. Did you from the last one? The last. I wasn't here in the progressive era. Is that what you compared to? No, I mean from Bill Clinton and company. No, it wasn't happening then to the degree either. I mean, there's, there's a practical example of what we're talking about here. This is actually not in the book, but I, it's something yeah. I feel very strongly about. The, 
um, the AmeriCorps program is this program that provides college fellowships and some subsidence for, mm -hmm. for young people who want to go off and work for a year. They want to work in, you know, in in the south side of Chicago, or they want to work in uh, in Mississippi or or whatever, tutoring or or, um, uh, or building homes or paving roads or whatever. Um, the uh, President Bush proposed a major in, after 9/11 proposed a major increase in AmeriCorps because he said, and I believe he, I, I'm sure he believed this, that 9-11 was a, a teachable moment. People, the younger generation after 9-11 realized the importance of connection and they were open to lessons. Open to, uh, uh, for the first time actually in, in 50 years, Americans were focused on how much we needed one another it, and could it, count on one it another. It certainly and this concentrated a, our attention. And this was a moment, and, and, and the idea of expanding AmeriCorps was a kind of a yeah. flagship idea. The Congress is now me, which the president made a core piece of his 2002 State of the Union mm -hmm. message. It wasn't just a side comment. I do remember this is that. a core piece, and then he came back to it again and again. Excuse me, Bob. The the Congress is now in the midst of gutting the funding of AmeriCorps, and and uh, I think that it is a terrible civics lesson to be telling our kids that you can say one thing and then not follow through, and I think that um, uh, this is one example of how government government could be a, a, a positive partner in providing the conditions for the creation of a greater sense of civic engagement. Does the faith-based initiative program that they formulated and have been pushing on and off, does that meet your requirements? Lou and I probably dis disagree a little bit about this. We've talked about it a lot, and it came up in the in the Saguaro seminar that you, you mentioned before that we've been through. I'm actually somewhat more sympathetic to the idea of, of uh, encouraging faith-based uh, connections because I see some of the positive arguments for it. I think as a rough rule of, th I mean America is actually a very religious place and yeah. as a rough rule of thumb half of all of our social capital is religious. So I'd say, you know, I can see some problems with, with uh, you know, violations of dis and a discrimination laws and so on in hiring, but I'm more sympathetic to it, Lou. I'm powerfully persuaded by some of the benefits of engaging uh, faith-based organizations at a community level, but I'm struck by the almost visceral reaction it evokes in trying to change the laws on this. I've never had the experiences in any other field of my life, the work that I've done, as I have when I've been involved with efforts to talk about and deal with how we would change America's public funding support for faith-based organizations. I've seen this in New Hampshire, in New York, as part of our Suara group. It evokes almost a visceral reaction, not on, on the part of just one side, but on the part of everybody. This is a very hard issue for Americans to talk about. Visceral, so, in the sense of rejecting the notion of government endorsing religion. Some people that way, others, people who are, who are in favor of it still um, fight, react radically to what yeah. limits might be put on them. And I'm, I can't see my way through to knowing, to seeing how we can actually achieve it because the process of negotiating it through will cost us more than any benefit on the other end. And that's where I think it will do more damage achieving it, trying to achieve it, than the results will be in the end. We can't get consensus in America. As we close, as we must in about two minutes, uh, let's say something about the Saguaro Seminar that you guys are much involved in. It's based at Harvard, I gather, in the Kennedy School. Right. But what is it? Um, for a period of uh, what three or four years we brought together uh, leading uh, thinkers and uh, and doers from all across the country uh, 
uh, about 30 people um, met every uh, three or four months to talk about practical, actionable ideas for uh, reviving civic engagement in America mm -hmm. and uh, for reweaving the fabric of communities. We had, uh, you know, a banker from Oklahoma City and a, uh, a, a choreographer from from uh, Washington and, um, uh, you know, a union leader from California and, and uh, a journalist from, uh, a national journalist, E.J. Dion, from... Uh, from uh, Relatively well-known uh, leading political figures, leading leading political figures too of both of both uh, political uh, parties, and it was a very interesting experience uh, talking through both what were the obstacles to creating new forms of engagement, and also some of the some of the positive ideas. And many of the ideas in this book came out of the our experience uh, with with the Saguaro Seminar. Have any of the ideas developed in the seminar? been put into active operation by newly arising groups. Yeah, there are foundations around the country that have adopted some of the ideas that we talked about in the, in the seminar and are trying them out. And there are ideas that were posed in the seminar that still haven't fully been grounded, but we're trying them. Give you one specific example. The seminar talked about the notion of the idea of a social capital impact statement. Story, quick story. You hear about small post offices closing. People turn out in numbers and say, don't close our post office. It's the only thing our town left, has left. We lost the gas station. We lost the cash market. It's the only place that people meet. And the Postal Rate Commission, required by law to hold a hearing, says, I'm sorry. It may be true, but our job is delivering the mail. We can't take that into account. But look at the damage it does to that town. If there was a social capital impact statement, if the post office department had to simply pay attention to the impact of that on the community, it doesn't have to trump mm -hmm. everything else, that would make a difference. There are groups trying that idea out now in different parts of the country. Uh, we are out of time, but I can't resist asking you a last question all the same. How do you connect all of this that you're doing to the communitarian movement, Amatayatsioni, and mm -hmm. people of that sort? Um, well, I think there's a, a convoy of, of uh, different uh, intellectual movements that are kind of moving together. Uh, Amitai is a good friend, and I think uh, he's uh, uh, raised a lot of consciousness about the importance of community. Uh, I think we're trying to do the same. We use somewhat different language, and I, we don't agree about everything. Indeed, Lou and I don't agree about everything in this in this domain. But I'm, I think uh, that. Uh, the, the people in the broad communitarian movement uh, share a sense that, as the title of the book says, it's better together. And anyone who cares about these matters, and everybody should, anyone who is at all interested and possibly even enthused at what he or she has been hearing tonight should get his or her hands instantly on Better Together. That's the title of the book. Subtitle, Restoring the American Community, by Robert Putnam and Louis Feldstein, who have been our guests tonight. Gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Us.